Welcome to this week's session of Pricked the Interviews. My name is Kim Brown Sims, and as a nurse of over three decades, I've always said that I've pricked many, many people, and it was always for their own good. Pricked is an interview series that touches on those situations that cause us to react. Positive, negative, inspired, angered. Energy is created, and through telling the stories of what has pricked us in our lives, we gain insight to the common bonds in humanity. Great and powerful action can result from even the littlest prick. Join me now as we jump into another incredible story about being pricked. A young lady, age seven, sits at the dark oak table in the eating kitchen of her family home. The yellowing linoleum-covered floor, green carpet in the living room, and paneled walls reflective of times past were comforting in their unwavering staying power. The smell of bacon cooking on the stove, mom in front of the frying pan, and dad reading the paper with his cup of coffee steaming next to him waiting to be drank. The child asks her parents, Why did you give me a boy's name? The mom turns slowly, spatula in hand, and dad lowers a corner of the paper to peer over at his girl. It was time. Time to explain that this world isn't fair, and in an attempt to level the playing field, they had decided to name their beautiful, black, little girl a name typically associated with a white male. The reason, they said, was so that when her application or resume came across the desk of human resources or school admittance staff, that they would look at the accomplishments on the page, assuming that the person who had accomplished these incredible things was a white boy. At that moment, the reality of discrimination, racism, sexism, set in. Welcome to this week's Pricked. My name is Kim Brown Sims, and the title of today's show is Peeing While Standing and Other Obstacles for Women in Leadership. It's with much enthusiasm and anticipation that I invite into the studio none other than Gigi Fergus. Gigi is the founder and CEO of Memorable Care. She is a registered nurse turned entrepreneur and has been doing healthcare consulting and interim executive leadership for the last 15 years. Gigi and I had the privilege of working together to open a 360-bed alternate care facility at the onset of the pandemic. Through the challenges and triumphs, what stood out for us was how applying the philosophy for caring for those who we expect to care for others resulted in achievement far greater than any of us could have imagined. The conversation with Gigi today focuses on the obstacles women in leadership face. We tap into the idea that there's potential for the business of healthcare to be done differently with the perspectives of women being included. The conversation is engaging, racy at times, and definitely full of the energy, passion, wisdom, and experience of being a woman in healthcare leadership. Welcome to the show, Gigi. And for our listeners, it's going to get real right out the gate. So let's get right to it. Here's my first question. Talk to me about the shittiest boss you've ever had in a 30-second soundbite. Let's okay. talk about the shittiest boss you've ever had and so, you know, with words, what you want to talk about. <laughs> so you asked me about the shittiest boss I've ever had. And I, I can, although I didn't technically directly work for him, I think it was in the interview that kind of 
let me know where things were headed quickly. I was working for a, a facility and the CEO approached me and asked me if I wanted to stay on. And I said, sure. You know, so he sends me up to corporate and I go to the big boss at corporate and we're in his corner office. And the first thing I do is I hand in my resume and he's like, wow, this is some shit. And I'm like, Okay. Was that- well, what does that mean exactly? I don't know what that means. And yeah. and then he says, he says, well, why do you want to be, why, why, why do you want to take a permanent job? And I said, well, I have a good CEO and a good relationship with the CFO. And, you know, I, we work well together. This is a good opportunity. And uh, eventually I'd like to be a hospital-based CEO. Yeah. And he says, well, you know, all I know is CNOs don't make very good CEOs. I, I, I wow. said, he says, well, you know, he says, most CNOs, they don't like to move very much. Well, you know, most females, that is. Oh. And, and I said, I said, yes. I, 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 you know, at, at the moment, all I could think to say was, well, then I must show up as an anomaly to you. Be, because well, that was good. You that know, was really- working in the interim world, I move every three, six, nine months, 12 months. I mean, yeah. I must show up as an anomaly to you. And he goes, well, you know, all I know is most females, they don't like to move very often. And as a CEO, I moved every 18 months. And most females, they don't like to move. They like to stay put for three to five years. So at this point in the conversation, just keep in mind, it's just him and I in his corner office. And I'm thinking, you know, I got nothing to lose. So I'm going for gold. So I said to him, I leaned back in my chair very comfortably. And I said, you know, I realize I don't stand to pee. And yes, there are days I'd like to to rip the RN right out from behind my name. I said, you see, I'm a businesswoman. I've owned businesses. I've sold businesses. I've made money and I've lost money and I've invested money. I said, but you're right. At the end of the day, I'm a nurse. I said, now that may not be a good fit for your company, but I assure you it will be a good fit for some company at some time. That's exactly right. I mean, and honestly, you know, so I call that a discriminatory prick, right? So the show is oh, called you know, Pricked. And because that mentality, and you're right back to the glass, you know, it's right back to the comment you made about the glass ceiling, that mentality of, well, here's the box, and this is the box that I'm putting you in, the box that you exist in, because you have an RN or because you're a woman, you know, putting that, uh, putting you in that box is absolutely ludicrous. And I know that that's been I've been prick like that. And I, I can't tell you how many times, right? So it, interestingly enough, you know, that was, I want to say eight, nine years ago or so. But more recently, as in last week. Oh, damn. <laughs> so, so, get ready. so so I have a colleague who's working out in the Western reaches of, of my state. <laughs> and it's not a good situation. This hospital, in fact, was listed as one of the worst 10 hospitals on LeapFrog. Oh. Okay. Uh, so let's be clear. This is not a stellar performance facility. Mm-hmm. And she's out there and immediately she acknowledges the breakdown that administration is. She's a PhD. She's well-known. She's, you know, highly skilled and proficient, has been doing interim work and coaching leaders for a very long time. And she called me and she says, oh my God, this is terrible out here. You know, I, I want to run from the building screaming. And I said, okay, take a deep breath, you know, because we bounce things off each other. And and I said, well, can you can you get a coach? I mean, what what can you do to support him 
and right. be a better leader. And she said she was speaking with the COO who was also complaining about the CEO's disengagement and inappropriate behaviors. And she says to the COO, she says, you know, I know a great CEO. That would be me. She says, I know a great CEO who is really skilled at creating transformations and really turning facilities around and developing staff and developing people. She, blah, 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 blah. And he immediately stopped her and said, nope, our board chair won't even consider a female CEO. This was last week, Kim, last week. I said, I can't even believe he would say it out loud. Yeah, because do, I, I mean, what don't people get about the fact that there are laws against discrimination? And <laughs> uttering words like that is a lawsuit waiting to happen. But the problem is we don't pull the trigger. That's the problem. Well, you know, and I, I wondered, how do you get around that? So I've actually considered because of these experiences where I know that I, I it's not, it's not cocky it's confidence i know that i'm the right person for that job for that facility but i get passed over for a guy who's taller younger thinner male you know any of those things, you know they, that meet the classic ceo guidelines you know over six foot uh, slim build you know slightly graying hair you know no beard i mean this is like the classic ceo look and i realize i don't look like that nor do i sound like that and, uh, you know, it just makes you think, wow, is this really still happening in this century? And the answer and is we, yes. It, it, the, answer, the answer is absolutely yes. Yeah. And it's the reason that we have systemic racism. I mean, it's a part of the isms, right? Sexism. Yes. It's yes. a part of that. And that's why me personally, I'm so freaking passionate about gender equality for one yes. thing. And just equality across the board. Like, it's not just me. It's my friends who are more highly educated than I am who can't get their foot in the door because of the color of their skin. Like, give me a break. I I had this conversation yesterday. One of the people that I'm working on, uh, working with, with the project that I'm working in Michigan, she's African-American and she is stellar. I mean, stellar, has great experience. Six, seven, 800 bed hospitals, great experience. And I got presented with an opportunity and she didn't. And she says, you know, Gigi, I mean, from the same company. And she says, you know, I wonder because this is not the first time that I won't be presented with something until they've gone through all the other candidates. And then I'm I'm like the last choice. And I said, I am so sorry for that. And she says, you don't have to apologize. I said, no, I feel like someone needs to, because why is this still happening? I mean, I, to be clear, Kim, I'm not a feminazi. I'm not, a, you know, I don't, I believe you can be, feminist and feminine at the same time. I believe that. I don't think that I, you know, I don't have to wear a low cut blouse to get my point across. I can wear normal clothes. Um, And, you know, you don't have to necessarily alter. It shouldn't be about those things. It should be about whether you can do the job. And it's brought me full circle. I've actually had a conversation on Monday with a, a, a recruiter colleague of mine and said, you know, I've really been considering changing my name on my resume instead of Gigi, which of course is an interesting name anyway, just put it as my initials, G.F. Fergus. Yeah. See what happens there. I was, there's a book, 
Um, I'm listening to it on. Oh, girl, I've got. Hold on. Hold on. It is. Uh, it's by Austin Brown, right? Hold on. It's on my bedside table. No, this one's Craig Wright, Ph.D. OK, what's it called? What's your this, call? is, this is called The Hidden Habits of Genius. And it's kind of off-putting because you don't think it's about this but it's written by craig wright oh i don't think you can see that no uh, that's okay craig okay. wright got it so craig wright the hidden habits of genius and one of the things he talks about is the disparity for women in certain roles and how uh he talks about how even in the publishing world where they sent 28 manuscripts written by written by women off to publishers and not one of them was offered it, but then they changed it to a male publishing name and instantly like 80 plus percent of them got offered contracts, exact same manuscript. And they did a similar study with resumes, same resume, male name, female name. The female name never made it into the final cut pile. The male name, it always made it into the cut pile. It's those kind of studies that, re and these are current. This isn't like from a hundred years ago. This is now. It so, is now. Yeah, I, I don't have to be like I said, I, I'm not like, a, you know, I'm not I may burn my bra, but I'm not really willing to do that right now. But my point is, I want to be judged on am I competent, capable and able, you know, am I able to do this job? you know, competent, capable, able, polite, kind, professional and compassionate. Those are the seven characteristics of accountability that I hold myself accountable to. And I hold the other people around me accountable to. And those that's the guideline. That's the metric that I want to be held accountable to. Am I competent, capable and able to do the job compared to my colleagues? And most of the time, I can't even get into that conversation because I'm a woman. Yep. So I 100% agree with you. And the book that I was referring to was this one by Austin Channing Brown. It's called I'm Still Here, Black Dignity and a World Made for Whiteness. Have you heard about it? I have heard about this book. I haven't read it yet. I got a whole stack of books over here that I'm reading. Yeah. But yes, I'll add that one. This author, Austin Channing Brown, is a woman and she's a black woman. Oh. And the reason that her name is Austin Channing Brown is exactly what you just said. Her parents gave her a male, white, male, male name so that she would have the opportunity to have her resume reviewed, her, you know, her book um, pitches accepted, so on, to speak exactly what you're talking about. But why? And, you know, this goes right back to my hero, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who says that, RBG. yeah, our, the notorious RBG, I have cycling socks to say, I dissent, because the reality is that we should all be considered based off of and be able to reach for whatever it is that we want to based off of our God-given talents. Yes, of our yeah, I've always said, I don't care about race, creed, color, racial uh, background, ethnic uh, background. I don't care about your sexual orientation, sexual preference. I don't care about any of those terms. I just want to know, can you do your job and do it well? That's exactly you know? right. I, and that's what I, that's what I gauge on. How are, are you doing your job compared to other, my experience with other people who do that job? And, you know, that's the piece that I think we miss. And you could have a whole nother conversation about evaluations and about how oh. people up, evaluate people when they shouldn't yep. um you know 
one of the books that I love when you're looking at, at hiring people is a book called Who. Mm-hmm. And it talks about how to pick good people to, to build your team. And in the book Who, he talks about different strategies and such. But one of the things I really love about it is he says, why are you hiring C players? Right, right. They always say, the CEO say, we want to hire a bulldog. But then they go and they hire the, the lap dog. They go and hire the cocker spaniel. And then they're upset that they're not getting the results they wanted to get originally from the bulldog. So, you know, and then I kind of laugh. I'm like, well, it rolls back into, well, how did this CEO out in Western part of the state get the job? Because clearly he's failing. And I mean, on a, on an epic level. Yeah. yeah. You know, how, how, how can someone like that get a job, but then I get passed over and I can show my effectiveness over and over again. And, and yet I don't even make it into the cut pile. Yeah. I mean, it sounds a little self-centric, but I, I can, assure you that it's not just my story. I'm guessing it's your story. I'm guessing it's my story. a lot of women's story. Yep. That we're not even getting into the, um, we're not even getting into the game. I used to gauge the current state of women in business in America by the percentage of women in the first class cabin. Right. You, you know, you look in the cabin and I'm like, one, two, three. Yep. That's about right about 25 percent mm-hmm. you know and so if i get on a plane and there's a lot of women i on it i look to see who's working and who is just flying on their on their husband's miles you know but in general i, I look around and i'm like oh businesswoman businesswoman business i'm like wow this is awesome you know because it's just it was seen for so long as being you know counter establishment to have a woman that worked outside of the home i mean same thing with nurses you know Nurses, if we weren't nurses, teachers, or secretaries, then uh, we were at home. And uh, that shift happened in the 80s when we started seeing people actually working outside of the home in expanded roles, whether it be legal doctors, business women, mm-hmm. uh, you know. But even now, even though we made that big jump, it feels like we've stagnated and we're just flat. Well, we have stagnated. So the McKinsey report came out toward the end of fall, and it was talking about the mass exodus of women from the workplace and direct representation or impact of COVID, right? Because you've reduced people's job capacity, but who are the higher earners still in your traditional nuclear family? It's the male. So the woman is opting to stay home with the kids who now can't go to school and they have to be homeschooled. And, you know, how does how do those responsibilities get divided up? Well, they don't. The man works and the woman takes care of the kids because that is your traditional you know, framework. But the reality for us women is that we don't want to lose that ground. Right. We don't want to lose the ability to continue one to have a very beautiful, integrated work and life, you know, and in addition to that relational partnership between spouses in child rearing has really started to come lean more in the other direction. I think it's kind of unique, though, to note that even when women are out, and I'll just use a classic old term, earning the bacon, right, bringing home the bacon, if women are out doing that, is there a true equity in the level of work that a man is doing at home. Because from my vantage point, and I'm going to be a grossly general, I'm going to grossly generalize here, but men don't see the level of detail that women see. 
So when we're doing things, and, and it comes back to a story that I knew about, an old adage, which was, you know, a woman um, says to her husband, I'm going to go to bed. And he says, yeah, I'll follow you in just a few minutes. And the woman gets up and makes sure the dishes are out of the sink and that the food from dinner is put away and that the lunches are ready for the next day and that the trash is taken out and that the doors are locked and that the you know dog has gone to the bathroom for the last time and um, then finally makes her way back into the bedroom, at which point the man is already asleep because he got up <laughs> off the couch and went to bed. I, so, so I've got to tell you, so it's so comical hearing that because I'm working from home, I'm working mm -hmm. remotely. My husband ha is a, a tech, an aircraft technician, and, you know, he works from like six in the morning until two thirty three in the afternoon. Yeah. And when I wasn't working, yeah, I was maintaining the house and everything. And, and once every two weeks, I would commandeer him into helping me. You know, Tim, get the vacuum out. We're going to, we got a vacuum. I want a mop here. You're helping me move this, you know. Yep. All my direction and pushing. Yep. But now, okay, I'm paid three times as much as my husband makes to work from home. I have more education, 10 times more than my husband does. And I told him, I said, uh, Bucko, if you want the house clean, I suggest you start doing the dishes because I don't have time. You need mama working. That's exactly right. I, I need to keep working. I can take I can take a couple hours and clean house and not be on these phone calls. And then perhaps they will restrict my hours. Yep not be generating the revenue. And I think that there is that assumption, right? Oh, well, yep. you're working from home, but you're at home. So you can take care of everything. Like, I'm sorry, I'm Zooming. I have clients on the East Coast. I'm Zooming from <laughs> six in the morning until six exactly. at night. When am I cleaning the house? I can't even get up to go to the bathroom or do 30 minutes worth of yoga so that I don't, you know, choke up and at 5 30 yesterday morning. And so, so this falls right into play with this. So I'm, I've reached a point in my life when I realized that I can maintain my weight with my diet the way it is. But if I'm going to lose anything, I have to get off my ass and go work what? out. Come on. I'm really frustrated by this, really upset. So I actually thought, okay, new month, new Monday, let's go for it. So I go out to the car Monday morning. I'm like, I'm going to be there. I'm leaving at 530. Woohoo! Going to the YMCA, got to go do my little workout thing, you know get a sweat on, come home, take a shower, have a good day before it all gets started. And I go out to the car. There's ice on the car because it's flipping freezing here. And the oh, car is dead God. as a doornail. <gasps> dead, like dead. And I'm like, and the first words out of my mouth, I can't repeat on air. But I, the second words were like, you know what? I am working out today and I don't care. I am working out. So I go in the garage. I get my husband's rolling charger. It's just like this huge battery thing. And I roll it out and I'm trying to figure out how to get the stupid hood open. And it's not that I can't do it. Okay. Yeah. I'm upset that I have to do it. Okay. Yeah. You know, why? Why do I need to know this? Why should I know this? Why? That's right. This is not for me to, I don't need to know this. I need to go make the bacon. Okay. So, yeah. but the point being is that, do I know how to attach the cables and charge the damn car? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And, and it's fine. So then I go work out and of course park the car and I didn't run the car long enough. So the car's dead. So after my workout and I'm like, I gotta be on a call in an hour and 10 minutes. I don't have time to wait for AAA. Let's get this on. So I just play the stupid blonde chick. Hi, excuse me. Do you, do you wouldn't have to have any jumper cables in the back of your car? And he's like, 
sure, do you need help? I'm like, yes, I do. Damsel in distress mode, you know? And so this nice young man comes over and he can't tell how old I am because I had my mask on. It's like the yeah. best part of wearing a mask. Yeah. I can't tell how old you are. And so he comes over and he's helping me and, and I pop the hood. He says, do, do you know how to do this? I said, yes, unfortunately I do. <laughs> so I hook the car up, I get it started, I get home. And it just reminded me that, you know what? I know how to do those things. But why should I? (laughs) And really, it's not that I have to have a man to do it. But that's your choice. Uh, Need a man to do it. I can do it myself. But frankly, I'm at the point in my life. Why not just pay one to do it? Right there, I am right there with you, and that's the whole thing. I mean, seriously, we we go in so many directions with this because. You know, the reality is we're both incredibly successful women, right? We have made the way for ourselves. You know, um, you've been very fortunate to be in a long-term marriage. My marriage ended after 15 years, but it was because I was exhausted. I was tired of doing everything for everybody. Now, if you listen to his argument, he'll say he was a single dad. I'm not quite sure how that would be the case, but, you know, we don't have to go down that road. But, you know, at this juncture having a man in my life is because I want a partner, right? I want somebody who I can bounce ideas off with and like who is someone who is my best friend who just, you know, we can just have those conversations, but we're kind of living those individual lives because my whole person is not predicated off of the opinion of this gentleman who is, you know, occupying space with me. And that seems to be really, really difficult for people. And that translates to the workplace too. Because if you have a boss who is male and you don't come to him with the, oh, save me mentality, (laughs) they immediately put you in a corner. And I'm going to tell you, there's probably a backstab coming somewhere along the line. So you got any stories like that, Gigi? (laughs) Well, let me, let me just add the epilogue to the story about my husband and the cleaning house thing. So his response to all this was, well, let's just get a housekeeper. (laughs) Okay. You pay. (laughs) Yeah. Is that coming out of your paycheck or out of mine, bucko? Yeah. So so as far as the, you asked, uh, you know, do I have any stories around, (laughs) you know, the backstabbing, craziness and and i'm sure i do out there i can't think of any oh i know one oh so um i recently i was working with a state entity and one of the regional entities got their knickers in a wad because they thought the state was just going to hand them a bucket of money and they were running the show and the state was like "Mm, no Gigi, you're running the show (laughs) You know, oh, good so I had to politely yeah. but professionally squish the boys back on this Zoom call. I, I squished them. And I, I mean, at one point I even called them out. I said, you know, I can see by your affect and the expression on your face and I can hear in the tone in your voice. You're very angry about this situation. Right. You know, <laughs> number one, they don't like being called out. No. Too bad. Yeah. And I wasn't going to let that sit there and fester. I'm going to call it out and get it on the table immediately. Right. And so needless to say, I had to basically squish them back into Uh. their corner. Well, now, a couple months later, and and don't even start me on nepotism because there was a whole (laughs) measure of nepotism involved in that. Oh, we can go down that road. (laughs) So a couple months later, and now 
they've engaged me to do something else with the state. I hear through the grapevine, or she mentions to me that I have to work with these entities, these regional entities. Oh, and there was a little bit of squawking knowing that I was going to be over that program because they didn't have a good experience with me in that one region. Right. And so fortunately for me, the person I report to at state actually is number one, a young female. And she says, let's just be clear about the situation. This was not about Gigi being uh, mean or not being good at what she does. This was about these boys being butthurt. This is about those boys being told that, no, they're not running the show in, in a very polite, professional way. But they were basically taken out of the loop. And this has nothing to do with Gigi being able to implement, orchestrate and put this program in place. So the point being is that, you know, that backstabbing crap, it goes right to uh, there was an article in Wall Street Journal in I want to say 2012. And it talks about and it gave some slightly erroneous numbers, but I think they've been debunked a little bit. But I think the premise still holds The the numbers say, well, for every dollar a man makes, women make only 77 cents. There's some that's a little bit contrived. I've read newer studies that don't quite show that. However, what they did say was the top 25 percent of earners for women were considered in quotes, bitches. I said, well, that's that's official. I'm a bitch. Because I refuse to be paid one cent less than I'm worth, one cent less than my male coworkers. I'm not willing to. I don't care what you paid the man. This is what you're going to pay me. Otherwise, you're going to die. I, you know, yes, absolutely. The problem, Gigi, is that it's one more reason for them to show us the door or to not let us in the door. And this is a major issue around the United States. And it is what is impeding our forward progress. Now, does that mean we need to cow down and just say, yeah, I'm going to accept it? No, it doesn't. But something's got to change. And what is it that's got to change? What is going to affect lasting change? So uh, one of the things I saw, and I'm trying to remember who the actor was, but maybe it was Benedict Cumberbatch. I want to say that was him. You could probably research that and find out. But on one of the movies he refused to be paid more than his female counterparts. And I thought, wow, number one for him. Number two, why isn't that the standard anyway? Right. Um, So I, I use that as an illustration. What's it going to take to create that shift that says that you're paid for the job, not for the person, you know, not for being female or male. You're paid for for being able to do the job, perform right. the, uh, and create the outcomes. And it's going to take just a a giant shift. And I almost, I, I stopped short of legislation. You know? There's going to be some policy change. Probably. Right, there has to be. There, Some of it is already kind of out there, you know, the fair labor act. hiring practices, you know. But even so... Holding people accountable to those standards is so wishy-washy all over the board. Okay, so, you know, that just opens a whole nother can of worms. So, you know, in in one of the situations that I was in, I engaged with HR to say discriminatory practices are occurring after I spoke with the person who is being discriminatory. <laughs> yeah. In, in, in as succinct and clear way as I could, you understand that what you are saying is, con- is right now is being received as discriminatory 
on multiple levels. And I just need you to be clear because that's not going to bode well for you moving forward, which of course was seen as a threat instead of a let's engage in dialogue about how to make this better. Oh yeah, because you're threatening. Oh, you're questioning. You're female, you're questioning. So you got to be threatening. And that's exactly how it was. That's how it was taken. So when I engaged with HR to say, hey, this is what happened. And I wasn't, I wasn't in the space of I'm going to take action against you. I just need this documented because I know this is going to come back to bite me in the ass. And guess what? It came back and bit me in the ass because ultimately the CEO, the person at the top is the person who makes the decision. HR works for that person. He does. They don't work for the people, you know, in on the floor. And so the, the way that I see potentially change needing to occur, to occur is that human resources need to be a separate entity from the business, you know, that is being done. Like there need to be separate um, accredited human resource agencies that hospitals have to contract with or other, other businesses have to contract with to manage your. Uh, I really like that idea. Because otherwise, it's always going to be the person at the top making the call. And if the person at the top is rotten, you're never going to get anywhere. Yeah. I was interviewing. Lawsuit. Yeah, I was interviewing with uh, I, this was a couple of years back. I was interviewing with a facility and there were I, it was a, one of those multi, uh, long day, multi-day kind of things where you're talking with everybody and their brother from mm-hmm. directors to docs to um, board members And so the board members started interviewing me and they immediately started asking questions that were clearly not legal. Are you married? (laughs) Do you have children? Are your family moving with you? What kind of work does your husband do? And I stopped right there and I said, before I answer any further questions, and I at that point had decided not the good fit. <laughs> yeah, not a fit. I I stopped, I said, I'm going to stop us right here. I just need to know before we go on, did HR or did the administration prep or prime you or educate you on what is legal to interview someone on? What, what are legal questions or what are not considered acceptable questions? And they're like, no, why is there a problem? I said, well, I just want you to keep in mind that you're interviewing me for the job. You're not interviewing my family. And the fact that I'm married or have kids or any of those things is irrelevant. And those are considered protected questions, kind of like asking me what my what sexual my, orientation uh, is. Yeah, religious, religious orientation is. Right. I said, you know, my religious preferences. It's totally irrelevant to whether or not I can do the job. Right. And I said, you know, I don't have a problem answering your question outside of an interview, but in the interview setting, it's not legal to ask those questions. And they saw that as being argumentative. Well, of course, because you're setting a boundary. You should just be, you know, Princess Pie and say, oh, well, let me tell you about my sweet little family. As my as my colleague tells me, you know, I usually get kissed before I get bent over. But, you know, (laughs) uh, you know, I just uh, I'm not willing to just do that. and Just, you know, you know, what's next? Just roll over, start counting tiles. I mean, uh, what what do you expect me to do? I mean, and, and, and the answer is, I wonder if sometimes they don't. Number one, they're just not educated around it. So your idea of having a standalone HR entity is really, really quite brilliant. Yeah. And, you know, the other part of me says they don't care what they were taught. They're asking these questions anyway. Right. And, they were. Yeah. 
Yeah, because there's no accountability around it. And it, it always goes back to accountability. Always, it, always, always. You know, Gigi, tell me something. So, you know, we're imperfect humans. So what misstep have you taken in your, you know, life? What did you learn from it? Because good Lord knows I've pricked. I say this on my prick live show all the time. Like I've pricked a million people. I've oh. messed up, you know, I'm not perfect. So tell yeah. me about, tell me about something that's kind of pricked you and like, oh, you know, I need to learn from that. Well, so uh, I'll preface this by saying that I have been pricked and I have pricked others. And instead of calling it pricked, I have uh, my colleague, one of my colleagues tells me I should write a book called The Pucker Factor, how to (laughs) suck your employee right to their chair. And, uh, you know, to the point where you need a crowbar to unstick their ass from the chair because they're like, oh, crap. You know, I just, oh, that did not feel good. You know, so uh, one of my classic prickings, if you will. Um, I had, whenever I get someone in my office and I'm having to do an administrative action, Mm. verbal, written, typically it's pretty important. Um, One of the ploys that women have been taught to use is they turn on the waterworks. They think crying will help them. And that always pisses me off. I'm like, I don't need your tears. And so, so if they start crying, I stop everything right there. And I say, you know, I don't appreciate your emotional blackmail. Your tears have absolutely no impact on me. I, and I hand him a box of tissues. I say, I'm going to give you a moment to collect yourself and gather yourself. And when you're ready to continue uh, with a professional conversation, we'll continue. But I'll give you a minute to collect yourself so before we continue. And then I physically turn away from them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're like, oh, crap. You know? <laughs> what was that? You know, I'm like, listen, you can't manipulate me. Right. And, and I'm not going to be manipulated. So that can feel like a prick, you know, like the little dig. Yeah. Uh, kind of like when I called the guy out and said, you know, I'm clear by the tone of your voice and by the expression on your face and your, your nonverbal communication that you're very angry. Yeah. And has, <laughs> has that ever backfired on you? I mean, has it come back at you? I had one person that I was doing a corrective action in my office. And I said to him, I said, you know, um, this was somebody that was working outside of the scope of their practice, an LPN that put in an EJ. Just say no. Yeah, just say no. That's a bad thing. EJ. That's my license. Because they they had training uh, from military. So they knew how to do it, but completely out of their scope of practice as an LPN. And so when I brought him to my office and said, you can't do that. This is not in your scope of practice. Well, I do this and I do this. I said, well, all of your good things do not outweigh doing something dangerous and bad. Right. I said, just as one bad thing will not outweigh all of your good things. I'm just here to say that you can't do this anymore, period. Right. And he got up, stormed out the door and like was gone. I was like... Dude, what do you know? What just happened? And next thing I know, he calls me from his car and is like screaming at me. And I put him on speaker so HR could hear him. Of course, we terminated him. But, you know, it was like, I was like, wow, I've never had that response before. But wow. that was probably the most like, holy yeah. moly, you know, this oh. guy got, he jumps up and he was a big guy. He jumps up out the door. He goes, I'm like, well, okay, there you have it. When you're talking about engaging with people, you know, um, setting boundaries with them and 
really being clear about your expectations as a leader. Um, you know, one of the things we talked about was, you know, instilling trust in them. And how does how does the action of the leader impact trust, I guess, is how I'm going to. Well, the, the quick answer is the fish rots from the head. And if the leader, if the, the C team doesn't have their act together, if they're not copacetic, and I, I'm not going to say, uh, maybe the better word is aligned, mm-hmm. because alignment doesn't necessarily convey that they always agree. Right. Just, and you don't want them to. You don't yeah, want no, no, you don't want groupthink. God help us, not groupthink. But you do want an alignment. Like you can be behind a closed door and have an argument or have disagreement, even a loud, boisterous disagreement. Right. And what I call professional bantering. And, and that's fine. But then the minute you leave that room, you're aligned. Right. You're on the same page, you're aligned. And when you ask, how do you build trust? Well, the first thing is it starts from the administrative team. You have to build that trust in the administrative team. And then it kind of trickles down into the management levels and then down to the front lines. And really, I see the CEO as being the in the C-suite as being the ones that go down and grab the guys from the bottom and bring them up and infuse them through the middle, if you will, because you want to grow them. You want to grow those leaders. So, you know, I jotted down a few things. How do you instill trust in the article you sent me from um Harvard yeah. Business Review was great and, and really great. And it's interesting. Several of the points she made, I'm like, oh, I, I, I've done that, you know, so this is awesome. And so one of the things, uh, one of the overarching things that uh, showed up for me in that article that really resonated, and I just kind of combined a couple of her points, was that you have to create transparency. You have to communicate. In fact, you should probably over-communicate to the point of town halls, walking through management by walking around, talking to sit down and talk to the people. You've got to create that open level of dialogue, but you can't really have that if the culture doesn't support non-retaliatory actions, you know? So having a high reliable organization, as much as I hated going through all that training, I got to tell you, just culture and high reliability Honestly, if you want open discourse and a, a non-hyper-retaliatory, non-hyper-punitory environment, you have to create the trust and that open dialogue. And it starts with transparency. You know, I think about when we were at Sleep Train, and that's mm-hmm. one of the things that you, Randy, and I did consistently. Our message was the same. And so it didn't matter if they heard it from me or from you or from Randy. They heard the same things. So that builds trust. They're not being told multiple things. And we created transparency. If if I didn't know, if I felt like we had a bad day, I told them, guys, it's a very fluid environment. Things very flexible. Look, our day is changing every day. You don't even know half of the things because Kim and Randy and I are fielding them behind the scenes so that you don't ever have to worry about it. I just want you worried about doing your jobs. Let us worry about the rest of it. But we created that sense of transparency so that they knew we were fighting on their behalf, that we were we had their best interests at heart, and that we were communicating to them frequently about what the plan was, what the goal was, you know, where we're at. 
And or just, even if we didn't know, oh, yes, if we yes. didn't have the information or we were like, hey, the information might change in five minutes, but this is what we have in this moment. This is what we're going to yeah, You know, depending on which person you speak to, it could change, you know, minute to minute, you know, even in the same meeting sometimes. So that creating transparency in the communication strategy is wrapped into that just culture. You've yep. got to have that ability to say, hey, guys, there's no wrong answer here. You know, and it goes back to the conversation we created with what must you have? What do you need? And what would be nice? You know? That's exactly right. Because the nice, we don't have time for at this moment. What, what must you have? What do you need? So yeah. let me ask you a question, Gigi. So you're working on creating this culture of trust, this transparency, this it's okay to have opposing opinions and to talk about things because we know the result's going to be more beautiful in the end. If everybody is, you know, putting their opinion in, you walk out the door and you're on the same page. What happens when you find out that the leader has been outright lying? What happens? Ooh, and well, how do you recover? Is it uh, a leader that I report to or a leader that reports to me? That you report to. Well, I am not known for being shy. Hmm. And um, I am also not known for glossing it in those kind of situations. So I don't have any qualms. They can fire me. I don't care. I'm at the point in my career, in my life, I'm like, fire me. I don't care. Whatever. I have to lose here. I'm, that part just of the that I'm, I'm not part ballsy. of the problem. Yeah, yeah. I don't care. Occupational hazard. Okay. I mean, I, I, I just don't have any, I, I don't have a need to gloss it. And so I have no problem with going behind a closed door and saying, I heard this and this and this. Is that true? Because that wasn't my understanding. Right. And was that a misquote? Oh, no, that's what I said. Okay. Help me understand where you're at. Help me understand the pat phrase for me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Help me understand where where this came from. Because let me give you an example. I was working at a facility that had, uh, was very inner city and had some of the wealthiest of the wealthy, but had the poorest of the poor. Mm-hmm. within walking distance of each other. And I was going around telling people, look, I don't care if it's the lowliest person out there. I don't care if it's the wealthiest person. Every person who comes to this facility deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. I don't care if they're homeless. Maybe this is the nicest, kindest thing anybody has done to them in years. Right. They are. They deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. And then I found out that one of the senior leaders was going around saying, well, you know, this is all we can really expect from our population. You know, this is all we can really, you know, this is just our population. We can't really expect to get good HCAP scores. So this individual made the mistake of saying this in front of me. When we were in our one-to-one, I did call that person out. Mm -hmm. And I said, please stop saying that. Do you understand you're undermining the message I'm trying to get out there? The scores, you're right. The scores will never move as long as you as you continue as the leader of this facility to verbalize that. Yeah. I said that. I said, you're killing me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so and so, of course, there was some tit for tat, you know, Gigi, you know, you're too talkative. You're too this and too that. And blah, blah, I don't care. 
Yeah. You know, it, and I know my faults. Thanks. <laughs> I know. Well, that's how it's not a fault. It's a gift. It's a gift. And, you know, and that's, and the reason that I say that is because we all have our strengths. I mean, when I think of you, I think, and I think one of the reasons I resonate so well with you is because you are tenacious. Like there is nothing that is one going to be put over on you, but also nothing that you won't strive for. And to me, it's giving me chills. And to me, that's what we have to instill in, in those who are following us. That's what we have to do for others who are coming up the ranks and especially in healthcare is to say, be tenacious and stand your ground. And the other aspect of it is understand your gifts, understand your self-worth and know that, know that you're valued. And if you're working in a place where your leader is lying to you or going behind your back, stabbing you in the back, triangulating, conniving, you, you know, you can go and call a spade a spade, yeah. but ultimately you need to know it's not a good fit and you need to step away if there is not amazing change. And the problem is you can't change people. You can yeah. put it out there and say, this doesn't work for me, but then you have to be willing to take the step and move away from it and own it yourself. You know, I, I look at this situation where my colleague is out in the western part of the, of the state and a lot of them have never worked anyplace else. And so they don't have a lot of breadth and depth of experience. They, you know, the, the bane of my existence is what she's hearing almost daily out there. Well, we've always done it like this. Oh. You know? ah, like I hear that and I just want to scream. I don't care. Just because you've been doing it like that doesn't mean you've been doing it right. You know, so uh, go Everything get the external out. reference. Go get external <laughs> reference for God's sake. Google, Google's a verb. You can look it up. Honestly, Google's a verb. Google, you can look up the word Google. It's a verb. It means you can quit. Mary, go in, in, our, in our house, we say Google that shit because yeah. there's always a question out there. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, and now, and now, because I'm a high tech, um, you know, we have a high tech house. I have an Alexa, so we just ask Alexa, whatever, you know. You know, the bottom line is they get comfortable. They get yeah. comfortable. And and unfortunately, this goes back to uh, one of the other things when you say building a culture of trust is that you have to educate and train and develop leaders. And part of that education and training is to teach them about being transparent, mm -hmm. how to be professional and interrupt bad behavior. You have to teach them and develop them instead of just handing them the keys and here's the keys of the office. Good luck. Your first manager job. See ya. Yeah, oh my God, we could, have, we could have a whole nother hour long conversation on that topic because that's exactly what I speak to. So many times when I'm coaching individuals, it's those individuals in that gap. They were fabulous clinicians or they were fabulous technicians or they were fabulous whatever. Oh, so you must be great as a leader. Well, guess what? You have to learn how to be a leader. And the biggest fault, and you can chime in on this, for me, the biggest fault is that when people go from being good at whatever they were good at and step into a leadership role, they feel like they still have to prove that they're good versus understanding that now your job as a leader is not to show how brilliantly you shine, it's to shine other people so that their light lights up the room, right? But people don't get that. They still want to say, I know what I'm doing, so listen to me instead of, I know what I'm doing. How would you do it? You're right. It's so the parallel... Yeah, the parallel conversation to this is uh, Michael Gerber's E-Myth Mastery. Mm -hmm. And he talks about Susie the Pie Maker. 
Mm-hmm. Susie, Susie the pie maker makes great pies. She makes such great pies, people want to buy her pies. So Susie starts making pies out of her office and she says, well, wait a minute, I should make a business out of this. So she starts making pies. She opens up Susie's pie shop. And 18 months later, Susie's pie shop is bankrupt. Do you know why? It's not because Susie isn't a great pie maker. She is. But the problem is over the first nine to 12 months, she has all these expenses. She doesn't understand how to build the business. She's not a, she's a technician. She's not a manager. She hasn't learned to be management. So she's got people stealing because she's had to cut back. uh, She's got all these overhead expenses. Now she's cutting back on the uh, supplies and the ingredients. So her pies don't taste as good. So now she's not selling as many. She doesn't know how to run a business. Why? Because Susie's a pie maker. She's not a, a business owner. The same problem is true in healthcare. Great nurse, great charge nurse does not always lend itself to great manager or great nurse or director or great CNO, you know, you've got, you have to grow. And the biggest problem we have right now in healthcare is we are not creating succession plans. We are not building. And I think it's, maybe it's the girl thing, you know, where we want to keep our stuff really close to ourselves, you know, where you don't want to share all your special knowledge, you know, but in the perfect world, you should be training your replacement. And that's when you know it's time for you to move on to another position, to move up a step, when you've trained other people to take your job. But instead, we throw them out there to the wolves and we like, here's the keys, kid. Good luck. Let me know how that works for you. Oh, you don't know budgeting? I don't understand. You you think an FTE is a full-time employee? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no, an FTE is a full-time equivalent, but nice try. Have you been taught anything about finance and budgeting? They're like, I don't even know what an HPPD is. What? I don't know. Not a clue. And so then I find nine out of 10 times when I go into a new facility over the last 15 years, I have to go back and teach some coaching classes that include basic management skills, like what should you include in any kind of administrative action, why it's important to document, how to do an appropriate evaluation, how to document appropriately, you know, uh, things like, um, how to build a budget, what FTEs are, how are you building your staffing plans? And, and unfortunately, a lot of people think, oh, I just step into the, and all of this stuff is just going on around me. It's just happening. You know, it's kind of like, well, I see the, uh, I see all the information on the screen in the ICU. I don't need to know about ACV waves on the CVP line. I just need to push a button. I'm like, no, you need to understand what the ACV waves are and why that M is bad. And if you don't know what that means, Google it. (laughs) Google, go back to Google. I mean, so (laughs) we've gotten, it's gotten too easy. We've taken the notion of, I want it now. I want that fast food drive-through service mentality. And we, and it's parlayed into how we do things, even at a management level or how we bring people up in the system. The problem is we're failing on multiple levels to create critical thinkers. We're not creating people who can think critically through the situation. And so the way this closes the loop, Kim, is that basically because we're not thinking critically, because we're not having those higher level conversations, this is how we get stuck in these ruts of, oh, well, it's a woman. We don't need a woman CEO. So I agree with you. 
110 percent yeah 110 percent gdp this is the problem this is why we're having such a hard time in the united states and globally in breaking the hierarchical top-down fear-based leadership model yes the reason is because if you don't walk into your leadership position with succession planning being one of your top priorities identifying your stellar individuals and helping them grow their talents then you're going to be stuck with, oh, you do this bad, you do this bad, you do this bad. Well, the best that you're going to get from that is mediocrity. And it will keep you looking stellar. It'll keep you looking beautiful. But guess what? When you step away, it all falls apart. So if you're not growing your people, then you're not a good leader. And, and you shouldn't be afraid of outgrowing your job. But absolutely. This is the guys at the top. And I'm, again, I'm generalizing. These are the people at the top because I've actually had really horrible, I've had a really horrible woman. She was actually the worst boss I ever had at the top because she scratched and clawed so hard to get there that anybody coming up the ranks was instead of saying, yes, let me help you. Let me grow you. So there's more of us at the top. It was get get away from me and I'm going to do everything I can to thwart your progress because I don't want you to make me look bad. And I think that mentality still exists. And it's why we can't make headway into changing the hierarchical model to an inclusive model of understanding that me as a leader, you as a leader, the other guy is a leader. We're part of a process. We're a part of a machine that if we don't do our job, the machine doesn't run. Just like if the frontline expert doesn't do their job, the machine doesn't run either. So I am no more important than the person on the front line. That's my right. job is to remove the obstacles so that they can always be successful. Yeah, my job, I always say my job is, our job is to provide 100% uncompromised patient care. And what does uncompromised mean? It means you have what you need to do your job. My job is to remove barriers. My job is to make sure you have what you need. Now, it's like I told him, you may not get the Rolls Royce version, you may get the VW Bug version. I like VW Bugs and it'll do the job. And you'll have what you need to do your job. That's what we as leaders need to do. And if it means in order for them to do their job, they may need training, education, mentoring. They may need someone to coach them. They may need to go take a seminar. They may need to go back to school. Whatever that looks like, that's the piece that, and particularly tied to financial swings in the market, when when the market is bad, when finances across the nation are kind of stagnant, what's the first thing that gets cut? So it starts with travelers, consultants, anybody that's on contingency, anybody that's in addition to your core staff. And then people start wearing multiple hats. And the second thing that gets cut, education. Education and orientation. And so what happens is in the two to three years it takes to get out of that financial slump, meanwhile, you're losing ground. You're losing ground education-wise. People are behind the, the eight ball. And then I walk into a facility and it's what I call the inch problem. You walk into a facility and I'm standing over here and way back here, two miles back, they're back here. And I'm, I'm up here going, guys, why aren't we doing this, this protocol? This is the protocol been around since 2008. Why are we not? Why don't we have a robust substance protocol? Guys, we got to catch up or the reverse problem frequently happens too, where I'm standing here and, and, and they, they, uh, over time, they've taken an inch, taken an inch, taken an inch. Now they're two miles down the road. I'm like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Standards right here. Come on. You got to come back to the standard. Can't take an inch because now that inches has turned into two miles. And this shows up when you hear people, you want, you want to test this theory. 
Next time you're in a facility, go in and say, hey, can somebody tell me what the policy on XYZ is? <laughs> Just pick a policy. It doesn't matter. Just pick it. And you'll have one nurse say, oh, it's 28 days. Oh, it's 14 days. Oh, it's a month. Oh, there's no time frame. You're going to hear everything under the sun. And what it tells me is they don't know the policy. They're guessing. Nobody has brought it forward. And this is not what they're educating them on. Right. There's no consistency in practice. So at, when right. we started doing daily clinical huddles with yes. all of the charge nurses from the different units, the last organization I was in, we'd come to the table and we'd start, you know, we had a standard process and a standard report out that each department had to go through to report on the same metrics so that we were all focused on the same end goal, right? But would we come up against a question, what do you need help with? What's an obstacle? Or if we were talking about a certain thing, sepsis, since you already mentioned it. So yeah. I'd say, oh, well, so what is the protocol? I just opened the, I knew what the protocol was because right. I've studied those things. I know what quality looks like and I know what the current standard is and I know what our protocol is. But I'd ask at the table, what is the protocol? Just like you. And first there'd be silence. Yep. And then there'd be, no, it's this. No, it's that. No, it's this. No, it's that. And then I'd look at the quality nurse and I'd say, so this is something that we need to do right. skills day on. Because clearly we have inconsistency with our leaders. So then therefore there will be inconsistency with the people who are doing the work. If you exactly. want high quality, you have to have consistency. Consistency is key. Another one of my pat phrases. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Consistency. Well, you know, when you're talking about that trust thing, I think that consistency also builds that trust that the that the information they have is current because they can trust that you're educating them in a timely fashion, that you're getting the most important information to them in a, in a reasonable amount of time, and that you're helping to keep them current. Um, I frequently talk about the management box. Mm -hmm. And so the front of the box is leadership. It's who you are when you're out in front of people. We're always on stage. It's, it's your presence when you're out. It's the first thing people see. Right. The back of the box is management. That's all the stuff on the backside I can teach you. Like, I can teach you how to do an eval. I can teach you finance and budgeting. It's all of the... I can teach you how to keep files and that kind of stuff. That's back of the box. That's management. That's skill set. Okay. Then the sides of the box, one side of the box is professional development. What we as an organization are doing to develop our staff. Mm. And the other side of the box is personal professional development. What that individual person is doing to contribute and develop themselves. You know, they should be invested in their own self-growth as well, clinically, culturally, whatever that is. When's the last time as a nurse that you've been to a big nursing conference? Well, right. not given uh, the pandemic, oh, you know, yeah, but you know, you can still find things online to that keep you current with your knowledge and your information. So those four walls are the basic construct, but if you don't have a floor or a foundation of integrity that supports all four of those walls, the house of cards will fall. So when it comes to building trust, the first and foremost rule in my world is integrity. Integrity is everything. We do the right things for the right reason, regardless of how easy or how difficult, regardless if anybody's watching. And it comes back to building that level of integrity that when you say this is who we are as an institution, then when something falls outside of the lines of integrity, people want to say something. And that goes back to that just culture and being able to say something in a non-retaliatory environment. Yeah. And a, and a culture of safety, because if people speak up, Absolutely. then you're in a safe environment. It's when they're afraid to speak up that the big issues happen. That's right. right? And, and when it comes to integrity, integrity is not 
and leadership in general. It's not having all of the answers all of the time. It's saying, I messed up. I thought I had the information or I made a decision and I didn't have all of the information. And so I apologize, right? So, you know, it's fess up, it's mess up, fess up, dress up, right? Okay, I made a mistake. And so now, now we need to move forward. So, you know, thank you for the grace of forgiving me for being human and making a mistake. I'm big enough to know I messed up. So now what are we going to do with the information we have and how do we move forward? Because when people see you're human, it's just like parenting with your kids. And you say, you know what? I made a decision. It wasn't a good decision. I'm sorry. It endears them to you. It's the same with your staff. You know, Um, it's the same with your team and and just being, you know. You know, um, and sometimes, I mean, honestly, sometimes integrity, you have to break a few rules or bend a few rules. But as long as you're not, breaking a law, a law and and I can you know if as long as I can come back to look we're doing this for the right reason mm-hmm. what's the intent what's the intent what and as long as there's no long-term repercussion you know what I mean what's the harm in allowing them to try right. and and or, or you know let's go down this path well you know 90% of everybody might be on this path that this is the way we need to do it what about that 10% that's going no, this doesn't feel right. And what you find is in in areas where there's high retaliation, they're unwilling to bring up their concerns because they're fearful that people will admonish them or or discount them. fire them. Yeah, exactly. And, and get rid and, of them. Yeah, I mean, and I think this is why, honestly, and this goes back to the origination of our conversation around women. This goes back to the damsel in distress. It's easier for women to simply just play the vulnerable type. You know, my daughter is is like the classic queen at this. She is the queen of manipulation. And I mean, she she's fantastic at it. I mean, she's like, it's like a, an art skill for her. She's really right. good at it. Yeah. You know, and so I just think about that as women, you know, frequently we're taught to not argue, to not push back, to not question, to play the damsel, to play stupid. You know, oh, how, how do you, I, you know, I, I don't know really, I'm not very good at hooking up the car to the charger. Can you put the cable things on there? Yeah. You know, I mean, I could have played that out, but it's not who I am. And even when I've seen my daughter do stuff like that, I'm, I smack her. I'm like, quit that, quit that. You know, and she's like, why? And she's and like, it works for them. Well, that's part of it too, is that, you know, I'm finding with the, with the younger generations, you know, the, the millennials, the Gen Z's, the, there's a new, it's a new generation now. It's the alpha. Yeah. Like the yeah. Generation. I am finding that, you know, they, they, I don't care about all that other stuff. Someone else can do it. I'll let them do it. They don't, it's like no qualm. Whereas I'm like, I'm a woman. I got to do this on my, you know, it, because we fought so hard for it. And now it's, they're right. And so, so many of them are like, mm. but the problem, you know, for them is that the opportunities are not existent, but also because there's an expectation that they're going to come in here right. and not come in here and work their way up. They have an expectation that they're just going to start at the top. Absolutely. So, let me ask you, so we're in the midst of a pandemic and for our frontline staff, it just continues to drone on and on and mm-hmm. on. And there is so much moral distress, injury and residue leading to PTSD, leading to burnout. And we're seeing an exodus. What, Gigi, do we need to do to take care of those people 
who are taking care of us. And I know I'm throwing this out the left field, but um, you know, I'm, it's an important I'm ask, You know, I see this. In fact, on a call I was on this morning, we talked about the fact that number one, everybody's short. Nursing is short across the country. And that the nurses who are your core staff, they're burnout. Mm-hmm. They're tired. And um, many of them are purposely backing off their hours or moving to less stressful parts of the hospital, even non-traditional jobs. And then you have the group that are actively working COVID. They, they literally are travelers that are going from COVID hotspot to COVID hotspot. And they're getting burnout too. So what we've seen is that kind of a shift in thought. Some folks are saying, well, dadgum, if I'm going to have to work this hard, I might as well get paid. So they're getting out of their permanent job and going and taking those high dollar travel jobs. I don't, it's a little short-sighted because we don't, it's not going to last forever, but they're doing it. Meanwhile, the staff that's there, there's this burnout level that even if you could get more staff in, the staff that are coming in are burnout. Yeah, it's not going to make a difference to them. Also, there's a level of resentment because they're working so hard doing the same job as the traveler who's getting paid three times as much. Correct. So, you know, what can we do? And, And some of it is to level set. And maybe it's that, and I'm just talking outside my mouth. I mean, I'm just throwing stuff out there, Kim. Maybe it's that we need to limit the number of hours nursing can work. I mean, I hate to do that because then you really diminish the amount of staff available. But when I hear nurses are working 60 and 72 hours a week or more, I'm really concerned because that we know historically over 48 hours consistently high risk for medical errors to happen. So I think the other piece is while no one really wants to go back to eight-hour shifts, it makes you go, hmm, I wonder if that shouldn't be an option. I will tell you, from a, it's a staffing nightmare to have mixes of eights and twelves, but those shorter time frames may be more easily um, managed. Yeah. You know, I loved going to twelves because you work your three twelves, get in, get out. Awesome. I got four days a week. I can do whatever I want. You know, yep. and if I want to pick up an extra day, it's what I call the appliance nurses. Oh, I need a new washer dryer. Okay, I'll work too an extra day this week and next day next week. Boom, I got my new washer. You know, the appliance nurses, and uh, so uh, you know, I've, I've heard of new car nurses. Yeah, you know, they going to get the new car. I got to work two extra shifts a week. You know, per diem somewhere. You know, so I I get it. Okay, so I think part of it is. Number one, I think uh, one of the most underutilized resources we have in any hospital is EAP, Mm -hmm. Um, the Employee Assistant Program. People think of that as for people who have drug problems or this and that, but really robust EAP programs have support for staff, for um, counselors, Mm -hmm. for psych, for, you know, whomever, financial counselors. I mean, they have all kinds of assistance and that's a free program through most hospitals. So, you know, reinvigorate EAP opportunities. Maybe it's that we create group coaching, like, and I I get the picture of like Al-Anon groups in the circle, you know, where you have nursing. And, and, And there's something to be said about the trench stories, you know, about back in the trench when, you know, I remember the night that I got, I took you know, 10 admissions in an eight hour time frame, the worst night of my life, you know, 
those stories have value to us because a lot of us can, it resonates with us. We can relate. Uh, so, you know, I, I took care of these, this COVID patient who was intubated and, and he was on the vent and we were so close to losing him or we lost this young guy. I mean, they're traumatized because a lot of the people we're losing are fairly young and we're fairly healthy prior. So I think there's some opportunities. Now, we can get into the self-care stuff. You know, if you ask me what I do, I know you mentioned yoga. I meditate every day. Sometimes I only have time for five minutes. If I have a really good day, I meditate for a good 20 to 25, you know, just really get in the zone. But, you know, there are things you have to do for yourself. You have to sleep. You have to eat right. You have to exercise. And you have to take care of yourself. And what I find is we as nurses, combined with the problem of we as moms, we want to take care of everybody. And we're the last ones to take care of us. Yes, I agree. So, so it makes it a compounded problem. I think the nurses are just tired. I think they're just tired too. And, you know, it's funny because I talked with I talked with Drew on Sunday, you know, he's overseeing an emergency department and a CCU at a community hospital in the Bay Area, and he's exhausted. His staff is exhausted, like he can't get enough staff. And, you know, he talks a lot about doing critical incident debriefings on a routine basis. It's a great idea. And also creating battle buddies, because we are in a war. We're in a war. Yeah, battle buddies. And so I want to perpetuate that idea of just having somebody who's either in the trenches with you yeah, or it can be somebody on the outside, but that you and that person are touching bases on a routine basis. And it's just a check-in. How are you doing today? You know, it's interesting because in that article from Wall Street Journal, she mentioned intentionally build relationships. Yep. And at one point she mentions whitewater rafting trips. And I, I had a giggle because back when I was a young manager, this is 10, 12 years ago. And I was working in Northern Maine, night shift and day shift didn't always get along. So I took teams of nurses. I took some from days, some on nights, and we went whitewater rafting at the fort. And what was funny is we would all go up there and I would purposely put the ones that were bickering and fighting together in the same boat, you know? (laughs) And, And by the time we were done, let me tell you, after that, very cohesive yeah and people could flip stuff to each other and they didn't take it personally because they knew each other you know right and and so uh, over the course of two years i took six groups of nurses up whitewater rafting and it got to the point where people were fighting can i go i want to go i'm like well wait a minute you've been on you get to go on too well (laughs) i'm not gonna reward you yeah yeah, you've been on too many i need you two to go like really i need you two to go you know, so you know, that could have the opposite effect. It could make people fight so they could have the opportunity to go. <laughs> be careful about that. <laughs> but but I, it, it, it brings a valid point in that you're in that, I don't want to say crisis, but, but you're in that struggle together and you're going through the motions and you're, you're having to pick up the slack for each other and be conscious of each other's safety. And that's kind of what it feels like right now in the trenches you're watching to make sure people are washing their hands and that they're donning and doffing correctly and that if there's a patient in trouble you go in to help them and and all of those things that lend to this experience of we're in this together yeah you know and so i really like the idea of the debrief and and the battle buddies i think the battle buddies is a good thing i like the name of that that's a great thing to pay forward 
Yeah, but I, I really like that idea, you know, it, creating trust, that whole idea, you know, it's not just about creating transparency, you also have to create the relationship. That's exactly right. And part of that relationship, yeah, that goes back to the communication and the non-retaliatory, uh, the non-hyperpunitive environment, being mm-hmm. able to say things, you know, again, you ha- still have to be polite, kind, professional, and compassionate, so that people can see that you truly are competent, capable, and able. but. Okay. You know, those are the things that lend to that trusting environment. And so you get into, well, how do you build that? How do you teach that? Right. And the answer is you model it. You model it. Yeah. Leadership is not taught per se. Management is taught. Leadership is experience. And just like balance, just like integrity, these are emotive qualities. So the best example I can give you is I can teach you how to ride a bicycle right? Sit up straight, hold the handles, look forward, pedal, pedal faster. Those are all the mechanics of riding a bicycle. But I can't teach you balance. You have to experience balance. And the same is true for integrity. The same is true for leadership. Management, I can teach you. I can't teach you leadership. I'm sorry, management, I teach you leadership you experience. Interestingly enough, special note, Love is experienced, hate is taught. So keep that in mind. Love is an emotive quality. You experience love. And that's how you get to know what love is. You experience that. But hate is taught. So it gives us an opportunity. You know, when you talk about transparency, they have to have the experience of us communicating with them. They have to have the experience of us being the leaders and being vulnerable and showing them that we're part of the team and that, you know, that we have their best interest in mind because we're listening to them and we're giving them information back and repeating back to them. That's part of that experience. And that experience is what really creates the trust. And that experience, as long as it's based in a foundation of integrity, that is how you build a culture of trust. And I think to your point, I'm just going to reemphasize, you know, coming from a place of love. Oh, yeah. Love is typically not something that's used in the management, you know, realm. But the reality is, if you come at people from a place of loving kindness, of loving intent, of, you know, loving desire to see them succeed and be fruitful and, you know, and and productive and prosperous, you know, you can't really go wrong. It's that whole open heart, you know, person. You know, it's funny you say that, and, and I'll, I'll I'll just tell you this real quickly. So even even as recent as uh, let me think, it was 2019. I had just come from working in California, mm-hmm. and very different female first environment. Like there's more female CEOs in hospitals in California than any other state in America. Okay. And then I go to Connecticut, and I'm at a meeting. And we're all in the business suits. We all, you know, have the blue or black suit on, the requisite suits, you know. And uh, we're meeting with this larger conglomerate that we were working with. During this very large meeting, uh, we all kind of break out and go get like something to drink and go into the little networking huddles, you know, the little um, butterfly mode. I go over and... um, I walk up to the one individual because I was the new person on the block. Hi. And I put my hand out. Hi, I'm Gigi Fergus. I'm the uh, interim chief nurse. And I put my hand out 
And the gentlemen, all of them that were around me, looked at me like, what? Who? Uh-huh. And the CEO walked up and patted me on the shoulder. Oh, that's a little condescending. <laughs> or a lot. Okay. So, okay. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe I'm just hypersensitive to it because that would never have happened in California. True. Okay. So then I remember that I was in West Virginia and in West Virginia, you know, it's pretty down home guys. I'm just like, I love, <laughs> I love them with all the, all my heart. I really do love my West Virginia people. Okay. Uh, and, and uh, so I go to this, I've been there like a month and a half and we go to this business after hours meeting with the chamber of commerce. And as we go to meet people, I put my, hi, I'm Gigi Fergus. I put my hand out and the men are trying to pull me into this awkward bear hug. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? I don't know these people. And my CFO, I said, what's going on? Everybody wants to hug me. And he says, he says, no, that's West Virginia. We hug women here. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. okay. So, so it was cultural. Yeah. So coming back to that culture of love, I think I would expand it to not just the love. I would say consideration because mm-hmm. I'm really clear that when you pat me on the shoulder, you have no consideration for me. <laughs> but yet when you come to give me a hug, you're considering me, I'm, you know, you're, yeah. you're, and, and it's just that consideration and it expresses itself differently. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a shame that it shows up like that, but I find that the more consideration you show, the more you've built that relationship, intentionally built that relationship. Mm-hmm. And that builds trust. Yeah. It shows a little vulnerability. And it, it continues to, I find that women are a bit more, we tend to have better consideration, a bit more considerate of others than men are. And I don't know what the, I mean, I have met my fair share of women who are not considerate, but, but you know, and I know you have too, Kim. But Generally speaking. <laughs> I find it very, at least, at least it's it's not the last thought in our heads that we need to be considerate of the person in front of us. Right. Mindful, maybe, is, is a more up-to-date term. Mind, being mindful. I just find that in the male-dominated business world, there's not a lot of mindfulness. Yeah, and I think it's, uh, it's mindfulness and it's also being present. Like yeah. truly wanting to understand where that other person comes from. I think women are better at saying, so tell me more about that or, yeah. you know, really exercising empathy, right? And that's the yeah. other issue with the caring profession is that nurses, doctors, other clinicians, they go into the profession because they have this desire to care, which typically, you know, the emotion You emote a lot and you have a very strong level of empathy, a very strong lean bend towards empathy. I'm laughing laughing because I I can recall times when people have said, I'm not very caring. You just don't care, Gigi. (laughs) And I'm like, they really don't know me very well, do they? (laughs) You know what? You know. Well, here's the thing about that. If they're telling you you don't care, it's because they're hurt. And so, you know, it's up to us to be able to tap into that, right? I hear that you're hurt. I actually do really care. And that's why I'm setting this boundary with you. 
That's why I'm telling you, you can no longer work, you know, in this environment because I care about not only you, but everybody else around you. And, you know, you are putting everyone else at jeopardy or something along those lines, but it's because they're hurt in that moment, which is more telling about them than you. That being said, it doesn't, Deflection, yeah. Yeah, it, it it doesn't mean that it doesn't hit me because I want to be a caring person. I want I do want people to like me, believe it or not, even though I can say, yeah, whatever, you know. But yeah. I do want people to like me. And maybe this is also inherent to women, but, you know, I seem to function from this place of shame a lot. Like, not good enough, didn't work hard enough, don't have a high enough degree, haven't put enough of experience in, tell me 35 years in healthcare, and I'm still like, well, maybe I need to go get this other degree. You know, you and I are sometimes you're, we, we're so similar. It's frequently <laughs> scary. Okay. Yes. <laughs> because, you know, I've actually contemplated do I need to get a PhD? Boom. And you and me, let's it, do it together. If we do it, let's do it together. Cause we'll have tons of, you know, and, and, and I, I've looked at that and, and I, I think, well, I'm applying for a CEO job and, well, I'm not getting a callback. Well, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm not. And I'm thinking, I'm a, I, I've had to shift my, I am worthy. I am damn good at my job. People will say I'm damn good. And you know what? I I had somebody call me. It was really just out of the blue. And it had been like, I don't know, four years since I've talked to this individual. Called me, connected with me on LinkedIn to say, Gigi, I'm looking for a new job. The place where I'm at, I really uh, am concerned about the integrity in this facility. I'm like, oh, she remembered something I taught her. And Uh and she says, I was wondering if you could recommend a company or a a hospital conglomerate that you feel is, has, operates with integrity. I was like, wow, see, that means more to me right there, you know, but, and yet I can't get the damn uh, interview. Nobody will even pick up the phone and call me. And and I, you sit there and you beat yourself up. I'm not worthy. I don't have enough experience. I don't have, you know, I, I, I haven't worked in the permanent world for 15 years. So nobody wants to look at me because, oh, she's just interim. And I'm like, I, I, I actually thought about taking all of the dates and changing my name on my resume and taking the dates off. So they go, oh, well, how long were you here? Three years? No, that was four months. Yeah, I got done in four months what most people don't get done in three years. Yes. Yes. You know, I I mean, the bias and the skew is so bad. And then this one, don't even, this one is so difficult for me. But the other piece to this puzzle is that we have people working in these quasi decision-making areas like HR that are doing these screens on yours and my resumes, and they don't even have a fraction of the experience that we have, but they're immediately screening us out without ever having a conversation, without ever reviewing that with a senior leader or a manager. Because I know as a senior leader, when I I, I tell them, I want to see every resume for that position. Mm -hmm. And you know what? And I'm looking not just for the role I'm trying to fill, I look to see, oh, this person has a really good resume. Is there any place else? Do we have, they might be good in a case management job. Have they, do they have, we have a position? This is some, let's get the right people on the bus, you know? And and, and meanwhile, 
were being screened out by a 23-year-old bubblegum popping, you know, uh, cherub face, plot face child who thinks they, you know, have made it because they're finally making better than uh, McDonald's wages because they finally graduated from college. Now, I know that was a lot right there. So I'm, I apologize. But, okay. No, don't but, apologize. But, but, you know, and, and, and maybe that will prick someone. I don't know. But, <laughs> you know, but the reality is, is I, I see it happen over and over again. And, and it really came to my attention. I was, I got a pop-up on my feed on one of my, uh, you know, one of my feeds, RSS feeds, that um, uh, how to decrease bias in getting placed for a job if you're over 50. I was like, oh crap, that's me. Ageism. <laughs> like, I've never considered that an, an issue. I've never thought about that as being an issue for me. I mean, oh my God, do I have to contend with that too? I, I tell you, it, it's really problematic. So not only are we faced with the whole issue of ageism, we, we have people who aren't qualified screening us out of jobs that we're more than qualified for. You know, I love, don't you love online applications? It goes out into the void and just disappears. And they take up so much time. Yes. So much time. I've yeah. I've actually just stopped. I've just stopped. If I see a job online that I like, I just call a recruiter colleague of mine and say, "Hey, do you have connections at this facility, or would you like well, to reach out?" Because that's what it's about, Gigi. It's about the relationship. You and I both know if you don't have a relationship with that individual or the hiring individual or somebody within the organization, you're not going to get your foot in the door. I, I actually have even gone an extra step, and I was looking at a CEO job. I called the CFO at the hospital. Yeah, yeah. I've done and that. said, do you have a few minutes? I'm interested in applying for a job, but I need more information before I can make a decision about whether or not to apply for this facility. I'd like to know the financial health of this facility. Mm -hmm. I can't seem to find any information that would tell me where you're at financially. And then I started asking questions. How much cash on do you would you mind sharing with me? I'm just curious. I don't need to know a number. I just do you have cash on hand how many days cash on hand do you have your ar days your a you know your ap days can you tell me what your uh i would ask what the rating was too because that's very well well yeah i mean i mean all all of those things and and i've had to go through the back door because i can't get through the front door and you you have to ask yourself why am i not able to get through the front door is it because i'm a woman is it because i'm a, a nurse is it because I live in the Midwest. I don't know. And, and so you start the above. <laughs> a combination of the above. You start beating yourself up. Yeah, you do. You do. Well, here's what I'm going to tell you, Gigi. You're phenomenal. Whoa. You're an amazing leader. And, <laughs> you know, I was very privileged to be able to work with you on the, on the project that we did together, you know, raising that alternate care facility in such a short period of time. You know, again, I'm going to come back to your tenacity and how fabulous you were about making sure that we continued to move forward and, you know, pulling people together to say, mm -mm, we're not going to go there because we need to go over here. Right. You know, uh, because that was an incredibly um, intense experience that could have imploded at any moment. Had we not had, you know, we'll call it a unicorn, right? Had we not had the unicorn team that we did, right, it could have been a very different experience. I happen to know that the experience that people who worked, you know, with us 
the experience that they're having now and then is vastly different. It is because there are different types of leaders in place. Right. Um, and that probably speaks to a couple of different things. One, which is a bee in my bonnet, which we don't really have time to explore this time, but perhaps on another call. And that is when you have non-clinicians running the business yeah. of caring for people. The people who care for people are not being cared for. You know, clinicians who know the business of healthcare need to be who is running healthcare. And that doesn't mean that we don't bring in these other very business-minded individuals, innovation individuals, tech individuals, but yes. who should be running the business of healthcare are people right. who provide care to right. people. Right. Well, you know, my humble opinion, but clinicians, absolutely. And, um, you know, the, the caveat to that is that not all clinicians are operational. No. And that's so, okay. So, but there, I think we have to continue to build people. We have to develop that skill set with them in what, you know, so that they're thinking operationally or system a system design concept. System design works really well in healthcare because there's so much complexity and so many moving pieces, you know. Well, and, and, um, human-centered design, human-centered oh. design. And on top of that, I'm not saying that these folks coming out of MHA programs are not the right people to lead healthcare, but part of an MHA program should require a year of clinical rotation. Yes. In I, some... I, capacity. Because if you don't know what it's like to be on the floor caring for a patient, I'm sorry, but you don't really know how to lead. Again, you don't know how to lead in a healthcare environment because yeah, it's I, a different animal. It is a different animal. I, I will say I have worked with, I want to say three CEOs in my lifetime that were non-clinicians, but all three were stellar. Mm -hmm. But I think it's because of their servant leadership. Interestingly enough, all three are kind of introverts, which is kind of interesting. Uh -huh. Well, but, they're um, right? <laughs> but they, I think I learned a lot from all three of them. Uh, one female, two men, one an older male, one a younger male. And, you know, I think because they had years of experience, they kind of came up through the ranks in hospital administration, if that makes sense. They were like an administrative assistant to the CEO and then they became like a COO and then they became, you went into that assistant CEO job and then they became, mm -hmm. a CEO. you know, they, they grew, they had to grow up um, in, in the role. So it gave them a little bit more um, acumen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's uh, again, this is about growing people and I'm very concerned when you know the average age of the nurse in America is about 47, 48 so you have a, a lot of nurses leaving, but the statistic that bothers me the most is that the average age of the healthcare executive or manager is mid to late 50s. And so you have this whole group that is going to be retiring in the next 10 to 15 years, but yet we aren't doing a very good job of creating that next layer of leaders and managers you know, maybe it's because finances have been low, so we cut back on education, we are orienting them, whatever that looks like. But, you know, we're just not, we're behind the eight ball. Yeah, I we're, agree. We are. 
we're, we're behind the eight ball. And, and it's, I had to remind a couple of the youngins that we uh, had at sleep train at the arena that um, yeah, I had a couple of them message me as I'm sure you had some message you too that, Oh, we miss you so much. We wish you were here and Oh, really miss your leadership, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I, I think to myself, I said, man, we ruined those kids. You know? <laughs> we did. We ruined them because we created an expectation for how they should they should uh, yes. experience, yes, healthcare throughout the rest of their career. Right. And what it means to work with leadership, and and they they just assume they're going to go to another hospital and they're going to get that, you know, and that they're going to know they're going to be able to have a one to one conversation with the CNO, and yeah. no, they're not getting that no. <laughs> at all. So unfortunate, because that's the way it should be. Shoulda, coulda, woulda, right? It's the way it should be. So, so. well, listen, Gigi, it's been almost two hours, which I, I know, right? It's awesome. <laughs> so easy to have dialogue with you. And again, I just appreciate you and, and the fact that you're taking, you took the time to share your gifts, which are plentiful. I'm honored that I can call you friend. And I well, just let me, let me just echo back to you. I know this is going to sound like the mutual admiration society, but I, I hold by what I say, you are a power horse. And I was so fortunate to have you. My, my job was just to get the hell out of your way because you are a force to reckon with Kim. You had that whole place organized and, and, and totally, you know, managed. Uh, all I had to do was, you know, keep the uh, agency piece working, you know, and, and, and keep that piece going. But you had the clinical staff, like, uh, and the non-clinical staff, you had them completely, you know, managed. And that to me was just amazing how quickly you organized and just spit it out and got it done. I mean, I, I was so blessed to have someone like you and our, t- you know, on the team. I mean, I, I still hold that we would not have been as successful without your leadership there. I mean, that you were absolutely a, an, a key element. I mean, uh, w- what you brought to the table just could not be replicated and obviously has not been replicated since we've been gone. Well, we just- <laughs> I so appreciate, I do appreciate that. I'm, you know, me, I'm all about, it takes a team. And I, well, I you don't, know, and I, I called, I called you, if you'll recall, after working with in this new arrangement that I was in recently and working with another CNO and really being, disenchanted with the level of uh, or the lack of professional engagement this individual has and I kept thinking how long she, is she a new CNO you know and is she new and then I find out oh no she's been there for many years I'm thinking oh my god how did she get in her role and so I, I for, for anybody listening I called Kim and said I just want you to know how much I miss you and, and and how much I just appreciate you if I didn't say it I'm sorry you know I just really miss that level of engagement when you know when you're dealing with a with a serious player Mm-hmm. And Kim, you are you are at the top of your game, huh? You just oh. rock it. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Gigi. And you know, I just see I always come from the perspective of a rising tide lifts all boats. So when yeah. we're all in this stride together, it yeah. just behooves us to build other people up. And I guess that's what I'll say in closing is that I want to thank you again for not only sharing your gifts, but for building other people up. You're out on the floor talking with those, you know, younger folks and older folks and us all the time, just building us up. And that rising tide really does lift all boats. We have created an experience for those people that they will never forget. 
They will never forget. And hopefully there's one small pearl of wisdom that they can take from it that will benefit them as they move forward. And that's the most that we can hope for as leaders besides leaving the place in good shape so someone else can step in and take the reins, right? Sure. Yes. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Well, you take good care of yourself. Um, Obviously, we'll be in touch. And stay warm. Thanks, Kim. I'll talk to you later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Several issues were raised today that are not new by any means. Women are being discriminated against in the business world, especially in leadership, and healthcare is no different. It has been well documented that women-led businesses are more prosperous than those run by their male counterparts. When women are in leadership positions, their perspectives support team cohesion and effectiveness. And I'll add this information that has come to light since the recording of this interview. Due to COVID and the gender pay gap, the exodus of women from the workforce to care for children and parents at home have eroded gains made by women in the workforce to statistics reminiscent of the 1980s. We've lost ground, and we still have a long way to go to make it up and to get to where we need to be. What you can do is be an advocate, mentor, and peer women in the workforce. Seek every opportunity to lift others up. Remember, the rising tide truly lifts all boats. We all need fuel personally and professionally. What fuels this podcast, the book, and the greatest gift leadership development courses is your interest. If you like what you hear, please connect with me on social media and subscribe to my podcast and YouTube channel. LinkedIn, Kim-Brown-Sims. Facebook, Kim.BrownSims. Instagram, at KimBrownSims underscore. Twitter, at ConsultingKBS. YouTube, Pricked Channel. Podcast outlets, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, iHeart, Google Podcasts, to name a few. Look for my book coming soon and available for pre-order on my website, KimBrownSims.com. I am also available for speaking engagements, where in my pricked presentation, I speak to a wide variety of general and corporate audiences with humor and passion about the pricks that have held me back, the pricks that I have given as a nurse, and how the pricks in our lives can inspire great, powerful, and urgent action. And remember, take a moment to thank the pricks in your life for giving you the shot in the ass that inspired you to greatness. Have a great day, and remember... Don't be a prick.